when I passed him in the hallway, I'm like, oh man, I'm ready. He's like, I am too. I'm like, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're ready. We never know how awesome it's going to be, but we always know it's going to be great. There is a story. Let me start out with a story because I've seen people do that before and it seems to be a good way to start. There was a lady and she was blessed with years. She was a widow and for most of her life, her husband had driven her when they would go places. She came to a point in her life where she said, I'm going to set some goals. And among those goals, one was, I am going to get a degree and I am going to get my driver's license. She's a very sweet woman, and so when she began taking her courses, she did very well. When she went to take her driver's test, she didn't do very well. But she's a really sweet woman, and for some reason, the instructor gave her her driver's license. And so she got some of her crew together, who were blessed with age as well, and they were driving around in the car. And before long, they were pulled over. And as the policeman walks up to the car, he asks what policemen always ask. Ma'am, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And she laughs and she's like, honey, I don't know. She's like, I was going the speed limit. I was doing everything that I should. And he said, well, ma'am, I was, I had the radar going here and I was taking speed and watching everyone and you were going 20 miles an hour. And she's like, well, Yeah. And she points over to the sign on the side of the road that says 20. And she said, I obey all the signs. And he says, ma'am, that you're on Menor Avenue, also known as Interstate Route 20. And so that's the issue. So he said, here's what I need you to do. I need you to brush up on your signs, and I'm going to let you go and have a nice day. And so as he starts to walk away, because he's a policeman, he's scanning the car. And he looks in back, and her friend eyes like ping-pong balls, teeth gritted, holding her little floral print purse. He says, is the lady in the back okay? And she says, well, sir, according to what you just told me, we must have just gotten off of Interstate 90 not that long ago. <laughs> the lady in the back was in distress. Have you ever felt that way? I grew up distressed sometimes when I would drive with people. I won't go any farther into that. But I had distress at times. And so when we talk about this word distress, it's always good to look at that definition. And we know that a common definition of the word distress is this extreme feeling of being troubled, right? And so when you dig deeper into this, though, you look at these biblical meanings, you break these words down, check this out. Distress can mean this. It can mean... What was really cool is it said, see stress. I was like, whoa. Whoa, this is getting deep already. It means the act of distraining. If you never heard of what distraining is, distraining is the taking of personal goods when a wrong has been done. The things that are taken as a result of wrong being done. It can mean extreme pain, and it's even likened unto gout saying that it's such an extreme pain, it's hard to get where you're going at times. It can be affliction, calamity, misery. It can be a state of danger, like when a ship is in distress. 
Before I go any farther, I think it's very important to say to someone today that if you think that your walk this far has merely been God being angry at you and throwing things your way as some kind of punishment, that is not the God whom we serve. And the devil can trick you into thinking that what you're going through means that God loves you less, that you've disappointed him. Stop the chatter that he's throwing into your ears. Just shut it out. Going into this, though, there are such incredible things in God's word. When you take the time and you're going through something just to say, what does God's word say? Like that word distress. We hear it all the time. I watched the perfect storm the other night. They were in this storm and they give out this distress call. In old movies, like the movies that were just like the piano playing and not even words, the damsel in distress would be tied to the tracks. If you were to go out today and buy furniture, it would need to be distressed. If you go to buy jeans, they will probably look like this. And that's, that's a tame pair. I mean, there's people walking around the mall looking like they're wearing denim chaps. It is... It is not good. It is not good. Distress is common to everyone. And I say that because, again, when these things come our way, we take it like we aren't who we should be in God. When things come our way, let's take a biblical perspective. Distress happens to the most powerful, the most rich, the most spiritual common to everyone. Scripture says in 1 Samuel 30 that David was greatly distressed. That's a man after God's own heart. He was greatly distressed. Mark 14, makes it clear. When Jesus goes into the garden with Peter, James, and John, the word says he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. The word spoken, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That is Jesus speaking. And so I say that to frame it up in a way that the lies that you have been being fed, that you are the only one going through these things, that you are in the company of some heavy hitters. How are we going to deal with it? Distress, that common feeling, what can it bring on? It can have these pieces which are built into it. It can have pieces of sorrow. It said that when Jesus went and found out that his friend Lazarus had died, that he let out this cry, this noise. And when you research it, it is just such an undignified kind of cry, just when you can't hold it in, this sound of distress. Sorrow can bring it. Weariness can bring it. David said in Psalm 57, I am weary from distress. A lack of sleep. Psalm 77, again, David. It doesn't let me sleep. Have you ever been at a place where you lay your head down at night and you think, all I want to do is sleep, but you can't? And you play out every worst-case scenario. Proverbs 127, distress and trouble can overwhelm you. In that Psalm 77, David goes on, though, after saying that he can't find sleep, to say he doesn't even know how or what to pray at times. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a place where you sit down and you know that you should pray, but you don't know what to say? And you leave feeling worse, like, God, I've let you down. 
It's like I've dialed your number and I've just left you hanging here on the line. I've been there before. Again, this is a man after God's own heart speaking. We're not here to focus on distress. I'm not here to tell you how awesome distress is and let's all be distressed. What I'm here is to begin to maybe share some answers. The Apostle Paul, who is this prolific, prolific figure, he writes in 2 Corinthians some of the hardships that he went through. Chapter 4, he says, we've been surrounded and battered by troubles. Chapter 5, we cry out in frustration. Chapter 6, he gets down to business. We've been beaten up, jailed, slandered, ignored, beaten within an inch of our lives, immersed in fears, living on handouts, and having nothing. That was just the hardships. That wasn't even the distress. Now, saying that, think about some of the things that we go through in this life. This is not just a decoration for a coffee table. This is not a book of good stories. This is the living word of God. Just as powerful then as now. That if God is no respecter of persons, that David being a man after God's own heart, the same God sees you. The same God sees you. The same God who says, turn to me. Take it off the coffee table. Dive into it. Make it a part of your routine. Here's where he gets to the distress part. Now, you wonder after all the things that he said, because I think beaten within an inch of my life could lead to distress for me. Here's what distressed him. Change. He'd gone to a new place. When we arrived in Macedonia, we couldn't settle down. Sometimes change, even good change, can distress us because we don't have all the pieces and we don't know what's going on. Another thing that distresses is uncertainty. We couldn't relax because we didn't know how things would turn out. Have you ever been there? That word comes from an old English word, and you know what it means? It means to strangle. Uncertainty is something that the devil will use almost like a hand around your throat. It'll choke out hope. It'll make you think you can go no farther than he will allow you to go. It won't allow you to take in a full God breath at times, you think. Don't allow uncertainty to rule. Fear is in the heart. Fear in the heart, one version said, kept Paul on pins and needles. Tension and conflict, there were fights within the church. I know nothing about this as a pastor. I've never had to mediate conflict. People always come to me wanting to do kind things for other people, and that's the end of it. And that's what I'm going to stick with. Misunderstandings, corrections, discipline. Paul would write letters, and part of writing letters sometimes was correction. And when you love someone, you don't want to correct them. It hurts you to hurt someone else, even if it's the truth. And so Paul, as his father, even when he had to square them up, it hurt his heart. That caused him distress. And bad news. I can promise you that there is plenty of bad news out there. Plenty. I won't go any farther into that, but there's a lot. When this mind is set in human mode, do you know what I do? I play out all those things that I just mentioned. 
I tend to exaggerate the source of distress. I play out the worst outcomes. Psychologists would call that catastrophic thinking. I will think it out to catastrophe. How has that ever helped me? How has that ever been something that's been positive? Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, he did this. He had a showdown on Mount Carmel. He went on the run. When he was on the run, he was exhausted. He was discouraged. He was distressed. And he makes this statement. All of the people of Israel have forsaken God. I am the only one that's left and that's faithful. Now God's purpose for Israel is going to fail. Like he wasn't the only one. There were thousands of people crying out the same thing. God's plan's going to go forward. As important as I would like to think that I am in that, I'm not. God's plan's going to go forward. But the important thing is not thinking it all ends with you and your sorrow. It all ends with you and what you're going through. The truth of the matter is that the setting is not the story. It's merely the backdrop where the story plays out. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul lets us in on a little secret, that distress is not the end, that darkness is not your final destination, that it is only the setting where this God story may play out in your life. A match. Oh, Lord. You know what I thought of when I saw that? I thought of... Pastor Nip, when you were standing here, Sister Nip had been diagnosed with cancer. And I remember him saying, everyone wants a miracle. No one wants to be the miracle. It is so easy to say God's the light of my life when I'm walking around in broad daylight. It is so easy to walk into Hobby Lobby and get a distressed little woodblock that says God's the light of my life and probably a little light bulb on it and put it on the back of my toilet. It is not so easy when the light of God is the only thing you have guiding you in a dark place. That there are times that we as people of God, we seem to like the daylight a lot. But what if? What if God says, follow me? You can only see the next step in front of you, but follow me. Trust me. Those are scary places to go. Paul doesn't just say, yeah, I was distressed and go on to another chapter. That's what I like about Paul. That's what I like about God. God never just leaves it. God says, so those things were going on. Now, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Well, here's the playbook. Two keys for dealing with distress. Two ways to find encouragement. The thing is, if it worked then, it will work now. And so in the Bible, when we talk about this, when we talk about the things that people went through, if God was capable of that then, God is capable of that now. There is no limiting him. Always start with God. Doesn't it seem weird that we live in a time that when people say turn to God, it's almost like a disappointment? You ever notice that? That when someone comes to you with a problem and you're like, well, we need to take that to God. And they're like, and then what? What are you going to do? <laughs> no, God's the answer. God's the answer. God is my primary course of action, and that's where we're going to stay. That is where we're going to start. See, a man named Paul knew about a man named David, and what I need to share with someone is the God that we serve is a God of agains. 
he can do it again and again and again. When we listen to that song, Rattle, I believe there's another miracle here in this room. There's this way that we tend to limit God, but he'll do it again and again, and he's not going to wear out, and he's not going to say, I'm done right now. No more miracles. No more things that people say can't be done. I just can't right now. He will do again and again. It is so wild. I'll just say it. Last week, there was some miraculous going on. You just knew. And I don't say this as a correction. I say, though, that some stood and spectated. And some left with things that I know that I know. When the water's troubled, you need to get in. And I don't know sometimes whether it's that we've walked with the same chains for so long that we've just gotten used to that kind of gait and how far we can go. But when the water's troubled, jump in. Because this is family. And I can promise you that no one looks down on family when you're part of this house. Looking at the things that God wants to do. Looking at this story of this man, this Paul, who could look back at a man named David and who could say, what did God do for David? You aren't alone. 1 Samuel 36, David was greatly distressed, and I love this part, but David encouraged and strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Did you notice the key word there? Himself. God has placed truth within you. Oh, we're a family, but there are times that you're going to have to dig in. And you're going to have to say, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. There are going to be times when Monica Cola Giovanni is not going to be available to tell me God truths about myself. And I'm going to have to speak those God truths about myself. And I'm going to have to believe those God truths about myself. The himself part, the herself part, we can tend to overlook that. See, no one here is going to be the problem solver more than Jesus Christ. Speak his truth. You aren't alone. Every place that you feel like worry once owned, it's time to begin to give it to God deliberately, to give it to him out loud, to give it to him continually. One of the things that Paul did when he gave it to God was he gave it to God in prayer. Psalm 34, 4, that psalmist, listen to my testimony. I cried to God in my distress, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Psalm 118.5, in my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. I'm going to ask you a question. Looking at me right now, right now, how many fears are in this chest? Can you see them? What that tells me is that the God that I serve is able to break chains that no one else can see or count. The God that I serve is able to break those things. And I feel like we get into this place like we're just supposed to walk with it. Is that freedom? I was called to be free. That is why he called me. It is for freedom. 
I want to walk in that freedom. I want to walk in a way that I'm just like, God, take it all. Take it all. These chains are weighing me down where we need to go. My mind is free and my heart is free. What's another thing that he did besides pray? He remembered God's promises. Do you remember? Do you remember what he said? I'm going to ask you a question. Did he lie? What did he say? Hold on to it. What did he say? Do not let it go. The second part of that, rehearsing God's faithfulness. That hits me. It reminds me of when we would do Christmas plays. And kids would know that's your mark. And you'd see the stage. It may just be a little foil star up there, but they'd hit their mark. They knew their mark. And so the day of the play would come, and no one on the stage, could you see a little foil star from back there? No, you couldn't, but those kids hit their mark. And there are going to be things that God has laid down that you know is your place, and God's going to say, come here, come to this spot, and no one else is going to see it, no one else is going to know, but you need to hit it. You need to go. You need to rehearse it. It may seem silly when you look around and there's no one watching, but I promise you there's a cloud of witnesses that's going to be watching. And they're going to say, what's the Christian doing? In Psalm 77, David spends the first nine verses telling us how distressed he is. Oh, and he is distressed. But then in verse 11, everything changes. Begins to change actually in verse 10. He says, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. This is my anguish. This is not your anguish. It's time for me to give my anguish to you. It's time for me to let go of this because it's not taking me anywhere. God did not call you to walk with an anchor of anguish hanging around your neck. He did not. For every God then, there is a God again. I promise you that. If you are in this house, every day he has brought you through, think back to that goodness. Every year that he has brought you through, think back to that goodness. When you're distressed, it's okay to pour your heart out to God. In fact, it's one of the best things that you can do. When my children come to me, if they just are real with me, it's so much easier to communicate. It's so much easier to deal with the problem. And sometimes we almost feel like, well, I'm not gonna tell God that because he already knows everything. No, get real, get it all out. Get it all out there. He's not going to flinch. But after you do that, don't save a spot for it. We have this thing at our house where I have moved the same things in my garage about 72 times. Now, one day, I put stuff out by the road. Somebody take it. Nobody took it. You know what I did? I put it back in my garage. (laughs) That's what we do spiritually. Like, well, I'm putting it out by the road. I'm done with that. That's garbage. That is junk spiritually. Yeah, but leave that spot in the corner open just in case it doesn't go away. That is the truth. But maybe, just maybe, what Tim was talking about this morning, maybe you need to build a monument in that spot. Maybe you need to put something up to say this was a place that the devil thought that he took up the garage. But right now, I know that I know that my God has done something. And every time I pass that monument, I'm going to know that my God was faithful then and he's going to be faithful again and again and again. Rehearse his faithfulness. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. (laughs) 
Are you redeemed? No one said so. If you are redeemed, it's time for us to walk like the redeemed. If I am a son of the living God, then it is time for me to begin to walk in such a way. To believe the promises for the redeemed. When I'm reading these things, again, not to think, oh, that was for David, that was for Paul. No, that was for me, that was for you. If God was David's shepherd, then he's going to be my shepherd too. It's time for me to stop magnifying the bad. It's time to begin to quote the word as it applies to the redeemed. So when I say it, I'm saying it to my situation. I'm saying it to the enemy that's trying to whisper in my ear. I'm saying it for all to hear. Do you trust him? See, Paul knew this God is the God who lifts up the downcast. Do you know how he knew him that way? Because Paul was downcast. So Paul spoke of something not in a way like, I don't want to talk about that. That was a hard time in my life. He says, that's what God brought me through. That's the power of testimony. Here's something, though, that hits me. Before the worship team comes, I'll give you a little heads up. It's not yet. That was a practice heads up. (laughs) Do you know what Paul does? Paul turns the body of Christ. Oh, look at that. I really got that on there. (laughs) The body of Christ played a key part in getting rid of that distress for him. I say that to you because it's about the same. There's something about turning my focus away from myself and turning it on church family. Something that cheered Paul up, the arrival of Titus. Something that cheered Paul up, the news that was shared regarding believers in Corinth. Last week, I said miraculous things happened. Do you know, like I can say, I do not have a testimony of a miracle that happened in my life last Sunday. But when I saw Tim through the week, we were just like, oh my gosh. Wasn't that awesome when God did this for that person or this for that person? Like it brought joy to my heart to know what God was doing in the body. Paul was distressed and Titus shows up. Paul says, we were just glad to see him. There's something about seeing your church family, but I'm about to get really real right here. God created you to be part of a body. A hug from Sister Nip at Walmart is awesome. But that should not be the extent of your church experience. We need to be part of a body Because there's something about being part of that body when corporate worship is going on, when that synergy is going on. Because last week, I'll tell you what, it was no surprise the things went on. When you have God's people just in unity, just in unity, saying this is about you, this is about you. And what's so funny is some people were worshiping so much, they probably didn't even notice what was going on down here because they were just lost in Jesus. That is is unity. And so for Paul to get away from feeling these feelings of distress, you make it about the body. God never meant for any of us to go through this alone. I shared that with someone yesterday. Attempting to deal with distress only leads to more distress on my own. And one of the best things you can do is to get yourself in the presence of others in God's house. God's a chain breaker, as I said, but once you get worshiping, it's like you're shaking those broken chains out. 
get to shaking them. Get to shaking them. I don't need them in there rattling around anymore. Oh, they're broken. Yeah, they're not doing anything. I need to worship. Not just any believers. You don't need to be around the negative Nancys too much. You don't. You need to be around people who speak life. Because it's amazing in church sometimes how when we have a bad attitude, we can find other people with bad attitudes. And we are birds of a feather. There is a swagger of the redeemed. I want to walk with those that have that swagger of the redeemed. What am I talking about? I'm talking about something like with Jim Watson, with Al's dad. When he got older, he had a hard time walking. And when God would tell him to go pray for someone, he would get up, sat about where Kristen was right now. It would take him a while to get to the front. But here's what's wild, right here. He did not blink from the moment that he got up. That it may have been tough for him to make his way down, but he had this swagger of the redeemed. And he was praying as he came down. And when he hit right here and he was going to pray with someone, it was like a lightning rod. There is a swagger of the redeemed. Do not let the devil steal that. Do not let him steal that. I'm going to close. There are two options when distress distress comes your way. You can either walk toward God or run back into more distress. The Corinthians, they went through it too. But what Paul did as a father was he helped pick them up. He helped equip them with ways not to live in that distress. Paul explained to them that the distress sometimes would press them toward God. It should never drive them from him. And as Paul pointed out, it was all gain and no loss. In a moment, we're going to be taking communion. One of the key things when it comes to church family is this. I was meeting the other day with someone. I was meeting with Sophie and Paul, going to be getting married. I said, it's amazing to me that when I think of people in this church, I think of them as family. I think that. Like when I say that, like with Paul, like I think of Paul as my brother. Do you know why I have that? Because of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the sacrifice he made, then we wouldn't have this. If it wasn't for faithfulness in attending, we wouldn't have this relationship of decades. That is what it's about. That's what picks you up. And I'm thankful for that. If you'll stand. Ushers. If you'd like to come down. Look at this. Usher couple right here. What I love about communion is the intimacy that was in that room before Jesus went to the cross. What those men had was because of Jesus Christ. Today, before we take communion, I would just like to bow our heads. This isn't something we do as a ritual something we do to remember we just ask that you would pray 
there are things in your heart that you say, God, you got to take that. That doesn't look like you. Do so. Let's pray. God, right now, we come before you as your children. We're about to do as you told us to do in remembrance of you, your body, which was broken for our sins, the blood that you shed for me, for them. It was so personal on that evening. And Lord, it is so personal now. I pray, God, that you would wipe anything that does not look like you out of these hearts. Let us give it to you and not leave room in the garage for it. And Lord, I thank you for this family. I thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. It says in God's word, hold this up. In Luke, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, for this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. How cool that he's waiting. That he's waiting. That one day it's not going to be like this, but it's going to be him face to face. If you come forward the way that we did this before, was starting at the back. If you'll file out, come down the middle, and come to the usher at the end. If you would like to take communion, and then go back around that way to your seat. And on this side, the same. to communion here this is not an exclusive club because the type of church we are communion is reflective of the sacrifice that Christ made for you if you have accepted Christ you may come down and take communion it's not one of those things where we say hey going on as you are getting communion just ask that this would be a reverent time but I wanted to point something out Lisa Merritt who attended our church their husband Jay an awesome couple as they were transitioning to a pastorate 
she's received a diagnosis and I know my God is bigger there is a family right now in our community who is mourning because their 15 year old son went missing when he was swimming two days ago We need to hold people like that up. So before we partake, which is my favorite word, just join me in prayer for Lisa because that's what family does. And for this family that we don't know their name, but who is sitting watching the clock and who's waiting to hear word of their son, let's pray. God, right now, we just lift Lisa up as family to you. I speak your healing because that is who you are. That is who you are. And Father, for this family that we do not know, I pray that your comfort would be near. I pray, God, that their broken hearts, that your presence would do something that our words cannot. Hold them up, God, during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.